Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. This is our weekly roundup, where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. And on our outstanding panel today, returning to the roundup is Politicology fan favorite, Susan Del Percio. Susan is a highly sought after crisis communications consultant, political strategist, writer, and MSNBC political analyst. Susan, good morning. It's always great to see you. Welcome back. Good morning. It's great to be with you and Liz today. That's right. Returning to the roundup is Liz Gilbert. Liz is a political and government affairs specialist based in Park City, Utah. She's a former executive director of the New Jersey Democratic Party, an alum of Governor Phil Murphy's 2017 campaign, and she's worked on the past three DNC national conventions, most recently as president of the 2020 DNC. Liz, it's great to see you again. Welcome back. Thanks so much for having me, Ron, and Susan, it's great to see you as well. On this week's roundup, First, we will discuss the deadly shooting at a Texas elementary school. Then we'll talk about the biggest storylines from Tuesday's primary elections. We'll also look at the Russian blockade on Ukrainian grain and what it could mean for the entire world. And then finally, we'll flip over to Politicology Plus, where we'll discuss the quiet search for a 2024 Democratic presidential nominee. Spoiler alert, people outside the White House don't think it will be Joe Biden. Again. That will be in Politicology Plus, which is our private ad-free version of the podcast, loaded with exclusive strategy and analysis you won't get anywhere else. If you're listening to us in the Apple Podcasts app, you can navigate to the Politicology Show and tap the button that says Try Free, or you can sign up at politicology.com slash plus. We'll dig in right after this. On Tuesday, a gunman killed 19 children and two teachers at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas, a small city west of San Antonio. It was the deadliest school shooting since the massacre at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Connecticut in 2012. The 18-year-old gunman was a resident of the county where the shooting took place. Earlier Tuesday morning, he shot his grandmother in the face and then drove a pickup truck through a barrier outside the school. Around 11.30 a.m., the Uvalde police received a 911 call that a truck had crashed at the school and a man with a long rifle and a backpack got out of the vehicle. He barricaded himself in a classroom and opened fire with what a state police official described as an AR-15 style rifle. He was in the school for about an hour before a tactical unit from the Border Patrol arrived and shot him several times, killing him. This shooting was one of the deadliest school shootings on record and is one of the more than 200 mass shootings recorded in the United States so far this year. And I want to get into the politics and the policy, but before we do, on a human level, how were you both feeling after the attack, Liz? Well, Ron, what I'll start with is as you were giving that intro um, to this story, I felt my heart skipping a beat again with every sentence that you said. I think whether or not you are a parent uh, in the education space or none of the above or all of the above, um, th- this hits home. It, it hits everybody in, in a different way. I grew up less than 15 minutes away from Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, and this feels, um, you know, while, while different, it, it's the same. And it's very 
disheartening, sad. I don't know that I have the words for it. I don't know that anyone does. But, um, you know, what I will say, the only thing that does give me hope is the opportunity I had to have a front row seat to watch Parkland, Florida um, rebuild and to get to know those students and teachers. And it was a really remarkable experience because what it requires to deal with this level of trauma is the coming together. While I wish it was for many other reasons that communities would find common ground and and come together, um, I am hopeful that um, that these parents will find peace soon. But you know, I know we're not getting into the politics yet, but this is uh, it's enough, and and shame on everyone not not doing anything to prevent the next one. Yeah, it's hard to read, Susan. How are you processing? Are you processing this news? When I first heard about it, um, I was actually at Emerson College. Um, we were going over to poll, believe it or not. And I was like, oh my gosh, this just broke through. And I just reported the news without even processing it. Just coming off being from New York from the Buffalo shooting. It seems like you just say these things. And then I'm reading the reports and about, you know, out loud to the, you know, this is what's happening next, next, next. And then all of a sudden, I was like, what the hell is happening? Like, I'm reporting on children, not reporting, but I was just sharing the information or updating my colleagues on children being shot. And seeing the photos yesterday was, it does grab you when you see that these these are 10-year-olds who no longer have a future that showed up to school. and and and. I was speaking to B. I had an hour-long program on BBC Radio last night, and they're li- in, based in BBC, not BBC America, based in England. And and they think we're bananas. Like they're like, what the hell's wrong with your country? They had one shooting. When they talk about a mass shooting, they can name it. Everyone knows where they were. Everything. When this happens here, you say which one. And whether you go to Parkland or you go to Newtown. It, 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 it's over and over and every life is important, but the, but the children and hearing how every person in that town, 17,000 people, everyone was related in some shape or form to people at that school, whether they had someone as a teacher, whether there was a relative and there were 19 empty beds on Tuesday night for these parents. It, how you can't do everything possible to stop it, to, pre- to prevent the next empty bed of a child, it's beyond me. After the massacre, David French wrote a piece for the Dispatch advocating for red flag laws, as they're called. These laws would prevent someone who exhibits behavior that they could be a threat to themselves or to others, um, a family member, school official, or local police uh, can get a court order allowing police to seize weapons and prevent the purchase of more guns for as long as the order is in effect. I want to talk about red flag laws uh, as a as a potential uh, you know policy proposal. Um, I'd love to know what you think about them, but it does feel like we're about to enter that moment when 
we hear a whole bunch of the same, we are entering it now, we hear a whole bunch of the same recycled proposals that we pull off the shelf every single time something like this happens and then nothing happens. And I wonder what you think it might take. Even the question is tired. What is it going to take to break this cycle, right? Uh, it, it, it's a question that that seemingly doesn't have an answer. So, Liz, I, since Democrats are in control, the White House, Congress, um, whether or not there's anything that will happen, I mean, it seems pretty obvious nothing at the federal level is going to happen. Um, red flag laws are something that could happen at the state level. Uh, individual legislatures could take these up themselves. Um, how are you thinking about the the political response, the policy response, and what could conceivably come of this? So, so two thoughts on that front. The first, you know, Democrats are so in control, you would imagine something would happen. And I think I, it was within 24 hours of the reporting of the shooting, we get a statement from Chuck Schumer saying, I am not bringing a bill forward because I don't have the votes. And I'm not very quiet on my distaste for his leadership or or lack thereof, but I will say this was, I believe, so egregiously offensive that you're not going to do everything within your power. And he has the power, right? Figure it out, Chuck. You know, do something. So that's my first comment. And the second, um, as you were talking about red flag laws and going to the states, what came to my mind was it will be so unbelievably sad. And I don't want to say, you know, to go back to a civil war era type of divide, but that your safety will be determined by what state you live in. If if we're putting this back on governors and state legislatures, that bluer states are going to be safer, but then you argue, you know, those are more populous and there's more crime in the blue states. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's... It's so tough because you look at both New York and Texas, two states that I would argue couldn't be more polar opposite. But I hope this isn't insensitive and I hope it's correct. But what I want to say is a mass shooting is a mass shooting is a mass shooting. And I mean, I agree with Susan that when you look at the photos of the kids and you're thinking, I mean, it's unbelievably jarring and devastating. But whether you're going into a synagogue, a mosque, a supermarket, a school, a parking lot, shooting up a significant group of people is something that should not be tolerated, regardless if you live in a red or blue state, a red or blue county. I mean, that's putting a lot of pressure on people to to think about where they where they live. Um, I don't know. That's kind of open ended thoughts without a conclusion, as you mentioned. You know, still processing the news of the week but those are my those are my initial thoughts. Yeah, Susan, I know we're we're still processing here, but I want to I want to try and get into what could conceivably happen here and what the, you know, if you were let's say advising Chuck Schumer, what do you do? What do you tell Democrats to do right now because we know we're not going to get through to Republicans. I mean, we all saw Ted Cruz talking about hardening schools as a response, which is just, you know, just Ted Cruz out, Ted Cruz, Ted Cruz in that <laughs> statement. Um, I, I, I mean, it was repulsive, but 
How do you think Democrats ought to proceed forward uh, in this moment with regard to getting something done? Well, part of the problem is, is we only do things when we're, quote, in this moment, which is part of the problem. I'm going to take a slightly different take on what Liz said, if just in the political realm. I'm too a critic of Chuck Schumer for decades now. Um, <laughs> that's just because I'm from New York. Um, <laughs> Got to bring a little levity. Um, I think it's a mistake that Democrats keep putting these bills on the floor and failing at them because that's the perception that is seeping into potential Democratic voters, swing voters. I've been doing a lot of focus groups with Hispanics, and all they say is Democrats talk about it and then they fail. And then they hold them accountable for failing. So I'm not so upset that Chuck Schumer is not bringing something on the vote that will, on the floor that will fail. What I think we have to say is there is not going to be any such thing as a big, sweeping, meaningful gun safety legislative agenda. But what we need is just a crack, just a little, like, even if it's not the full, even if there are loopholes in a red flag law or back, we need to get people to vote. And I understand what you're saying about writing off Republicans. I've, I'm writing them off constantly. But on this, you know, there's five senators, including Pat Toomey, who are retiring this year. There are five there are five people who can certainly bring on at least three immediately, which I'm thinking of Lisa Murkowski, Susan Collins, and Mitt Romney, on some form of legislation. It's not going to solve the problem. This is not a solution to what happened on Tuesday. It's never, we always try and find this way to quickly fix what happened um, the day on a certain day to address a certain problem. This is a bigger problem, but we need something. We need, and and I have seen, unfortunately, tremendous advocates from, from Newtown, from, from, from Parkland. These are survivors um, and, and family members and who lost a child. And, and they are the best advocates. And I want them on the, on, up in Washington speaking to them directly and saying, you can save one life. One life. Isn't that worth it? One child's life. You may save your grandchild's life with this piece of legislation. Do something to break it. On a bigger, broader, you know, uh, legislative agenda, I, I think it's not gonna happen, but I was thinking this morning, I've been traveling a lot, and people have to take off their shoes every time they get on an airplane for an attempted, attempted terrorist attack over 20 years ago. We know that AR-15s are a weapon of war that have killed hundreds of people and hundreds of children. Why wouldn't we make and look at this weapon that we know is responsible? You want to do something that, that ish goes to exactly a problem? It's this weapon and weapons similar to it. Ban it. I can't have a rocket launcher. Ban the AR-15 because as much as it's about talking about background checks and red flags, it's also about the guns. We have a problem in this country. And the fact is, is we have too many guns and we have too many weapons of war. That, that Chuck Schumer's advisors aren't understanding that they have Republicans they could pick off 
and that they don't need to do something large and sweeping, but they could do something. What you what you said, the crack or something small, a first step, whatever. It, I don't want to say damned if you're do, damned if you're don't, but it, maybe maybe it wouldn't fail. Maybe he could reach. How those. many votes is he missing in his own caucus? Do you think? Pro- probably two. Small, probably none. Probably I don't none. think so. If it's something small, I think he could get. Like if he reinst- if he re put in the mansion bill, the mansion to yeah. bill, he get yeah, back. Yeah. The fact that he is not doing that is, I, I, I can't even speak of it. That's what I, that's what I mean. Like he has yeah. the power and Democrats yeah. who are not poised to win the midterms, to sweep the midterms, whatever, are never going to be in this position. I don't yeah. want to say again, but for a long time. And if they don't do it now, you know, uh, yeah. they're missing their shot. So, and one other thing, just to yeah. add to that, is there are very a few minor, minor things that can be done uh, through executive order that the president should immediately do to at least just do, like I said, anything that saves a single life makes a difference. Yeah. And so I think he really, you know, the president needs to show up. And you know, when it comes to Republicans and and Democrats working on this issue. They can't do it in in the spotlight. I hate to say it. They need to do it. Senator Murphy said in the next 10 days, that's a great time because you know why? They're off. Have those behind the scene conversations during the next 10 days. Find a little something. Because what we have seen, you know, we just heard the leak of the Roe v. Wade decision shocked and completely, you know, just shocked everyone how it could happen. Democrats especially. Oh my God, we're going to lose Roe v. Wade. Well, Republicans have treated the gun lobby the same way Democrats have worked on protecting Roe v. Wade. Both say one little crack and it's gone forever. Well, the Republicans worked the state legislature and now we have 14 state laws that are set to trigger the second Roe v. Wade mm-hmm. is overturned. So you need a pathway. There's one. Yeah. Yeah. Liz, I, you know, we've, we've talked about this before and I have been a, you know, uh, a very vocal proponent of Democrats beginning to focus a whole lot more on state legislatures for a number of different yep. issues. But do you, do you, do you imagine that happening anytime soon, especially with <laughs> regard to this, this, this particular <laughs> issue, right? We've talked about it in the context of democracy um, and, and, and sort of ballot integrity and, you know, uh, fighting election subversion, but, but something like this, it, it, it just, it really, any, any, anything at the federal level is just so intractable at this point. Yeah. Anything really significant is so intractable. Um, the states are where you can actually get something done, get some progress made. Um, what is it going to take to get Democrats to embrace federalism and go state by state and be a little bit more methodical about what they want to do? Ron, I think if I or we or anyone had that answer, we would be in such a different place. And I know we've talked about it on the show a lot, um, and I think we'll talk about it in upcoming sections. Um, uh, my initial snarky comment that I just am hoping to get in here with some a little grace, um, I know we're talking about it during the plus segment um, uh, about the DGA conference and folks calling for a potential primary to Joe Biden, et cetera. The comment I want to make is I wish that when the Democratic Governors Association gathered, they were talking about how to win the states, how to strengthen their positions, how to not lose any of these races, not about the White House, 
that's not the place to do it. We need to be having these conversations about state legislative races. I mean, the last time I was on, I think it was um, with Lucy Caldwell. She was, you know, it's not the sexy stuff. Caring about state representatives and state senators might not seem sexy. It is so critically important to your well-being to your day-to-day life. Yeah. And, you know, again, I know we're also going to talk about the, the Georgia primary elections, but if you think about who used to care about secretary of state races, the Republicans did. And so as you look at AG races, secretary of state races, I mean, it doesn't feel sexy to be a mega donor and be like, this is the relationship I'm going to build. But the savviest donors do figure that out. I always go back to the fundraising as a recovering political fundraiser. Um, and I know that, and I know that, you know, the, the dollars speak volumes, but um, it's going to take a lot of discipline. I would say it's going to take a lot of leadership from the DNC. You know, where is Jamie Harrison on this? What, what is happening there? Where's, where's the leadership? Where's the full throttle approach at, we're going to be as disciplined as the Republicans have been if we want to make a difference, not just have hashtag BLM, hashtag me too, like all of these things. Like there was a really, and and I'll be quiet in a second, but there was a really interesting meme right after the um, draft opinion leaked. And it was, it said like Republicans colon, we don't care about your bodies. And then Democrats colon, we don't care about your bodies with all of the emojis of like a rainbow, a black fist, all these things. It's like, the two parties are saying the same shit, just the Democrats say it with hashtags and, you know, social media in a different way. So, um, yeah, it's going to take a lot of discipline and a lot of leadership, a lot of leadership on this one. Yeah, just to Liz's point, and I know you want to move on, Ron, I'm sorry. Okay. But, you know, the Wisconsin is basically a, a vote, a, a state senator away from having a veto-proof majority. So even if the even if Evers pulls through in Wisconsin, he's going to be able to if he vetoes that there's going to be a state Senate that can override. There is already, I believe, an assembly that can or it's the other way around. I apologize. But like that's a pro- like talk about the need for state representation. One vote away. Supermajority. No one's paying attention. On Tuesday, voters in Georgia, Arkansas, and Alabama headed to the polls for primary races. All eyes have been on Georgia. Liz, as you mentioned, heading into the primaries. Incumbent Governor Brian Kemp steamrolled the Trump-backed former U.S. Senator David Perdue for the Republican nomination for governor. Kemp beat Perdue by about 50 points. Um, The Jesus Guns Babies woman... Candidate Candace Taylor came in a distant third in that race. If you don't know what I'm talking about, please go Google that and watch the videos. They're insane. Kemp drew Trump's ire after he and Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger refused to steal the 2020 election. Uh, Susan, what was your read on that race in particular, the Raffensperger race? Um, I it was supposed to be a lot closer, but it's the one thing I take away because, you know, Donald Trump was the one on his vengeance tour um, going after both the secretary of state and governor incumbents is that, you know, the saying in politics is you can't beat something with nothing. But as incumbents, we're learning you can't beat something with nothing, even if that nothing has Donald Trump's endorsement. His endorsement (laughs) matters in a primary. It does not matter when you're running against someone 
with a record who Republicans are used to voting for. And again, I'm talking primaries right now. But I was very pleased to see that the endorsement and, and the races out there that that governance held, even if you don't like Kemp's brand of governance, yeah. it held. Sanity held because the alternative was completely frightening. Yeah. Um, go ahead, Liz. Yeah. I was just going to say my one my one comment on that is that um, it is good for democracy and just bad for Stacey Abrams. So that yeah. my one kind of take so, on that. So to, yeah, so he goes on to face Stacey Abrams. Uh, that's going to be a very interesting race to watch. Yeah. I don't think it's... I, I don't think it's, you know, being hyperbolic to say Brad Raffensperger was one of the only people standing between Donald Trump and destroying the republic following the 2020 election. He was it. He was basically the linchpin, yeah. right? Yeah. He yeah. managed to beat uh, this the Trump-endorsed candidate, Jody Heiss, um, it, to earn the Republican nomination for Secretary of State. I, I mean, what I want to know is how should we be thinking about the elected officials who are walking this line between being too close and too far away from Trump. How are they, you know, what's in the calculus there, Susan? Well, they should start learning from the primaries. We're seeing that, again, people with a record, incumbents especially, can survive even if Donald Trump isn't with them. And in Kemp's case, let's not forget, he actively campaigned, which is unusual for Donald Trump. He put money in. And he really actively campaigned against Kemp. And it's saying that Republicans are, t- I think, that Republicans are tired of hearing about 2020 and they want to move on, even if they agree with Trump's policies. Because a lot of these incumbents, a lot of Republicans, you'll hear say, I, I couldn't stand Trump, but um, I agreed with his policies. So there's room there. And, and, and look, at the, look at the numbers. If these Republicans in the last few first last few primaries are surviving, that's a big deal. Look at Idaho blowout there against the the um, the incumbent against the Trump endorsed candidate. Even Ohio, um, Trump was no fan of Dewine, and and he took it. So mm-hmm. while it may still matter, it's it's significant that. It's not defining the races. Something I found interesting, um, Ron, in the Washington Post article, I think it was either the day or two days after the election, you know, they addressed how um, Raffensperger did it, which I think is really interesting um, because this is a guy, I think it says even in the article, this is a guy a year ago that no establishment Republicans wanted to meet with or be associated with. And then he wins by 19 points. And so the the line from the Washington Post is that he was able to do it by closing the gap among Republican voters, attracting Democrats who had celebrated his decision to uphold the law um, and then avoiding the runoff. And so uh, there's a playbook, right? It's uh, There are still... I mean, the two of you can can tell me if I'm correct, and I think I'm speaking to no, two of them. But by all means. there are still <laughs> there are still um, sane-minded Republicans out there trying to fight for their party, and I think we saw that in Georgia, not at the federal level, but we saw it in these in these very important statewide races. Again, I am a Democrat, but it gives me um, great confidence that these um, you know that the crazies didn't win this time. Um, 
but yeah, just again, a tougher general election for the Democrats to win now because Republicans are, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, you're right. It, that's exactly right. I mean, this is, I, I think, I think there's good results all around, but you're right. They are, it's going to make it much tougher for, uh, yeah. for the Democrats. Um, Liz also on Tuesday, uh, former white house press secretary, Sarah Huckabee Sanders won the Republican nomination for governor of Arkansas. Um, I mean, we've known this was coming. We haven't really talked about it very much. Uh, she's going to be the next governor of Arkansas. Right. Um, and I wonder how you're thinking about the top tier of Trump enablers and acolytes now running for office and, 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 and winning. Well, I hadn't, I hadn't thought of it in, in that way. Exactly. And that is um, a little more petrifying, um, than I was thinking. Um, Look, it is very, it is very scary. And this brings me back to the comment I made, you know, your safety, your wellness, your, your rule of law will be so flagrantly determined by the state in which you live that it's not just, you know, you get a little bit of a different life if you're in California versus Tennessee, your well-being um, is going to be determined by these radical governors. And quite frankly, we might see radical on on both sides. Um, But where you live is going to be so impacted, I believe, by these races. Um, No one is surprised she won. Obviously, you know, I think I think the funny quote was like, unless, you know, short of being struck by lightning or something like that, you know, she she will be the next governor and probably um, probably still would be the next governor if she was struck by lightning. Um, but I think, um, you know, what to me is interesting about this story is watching, and this is something that I know, Ron, you know more about than I'll ever even be able to forget. But when I think about the, some of the work that you did with the Lincoln project and focusing on the changing of these states, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, when she is the next governor of Arkansas, her portrait is going to sit not too many portraits down from Bill Clinton. You know, we have to talk about the political operations in these states, how they change over the years, who is doing the not sexy work of making red states entrenched ruby red forever. And I was just thinking of that of that visual. You know, this is where the Clinton machine was founded and where it thrived. And I don't think any of those Democrats or even moderate Republicans are are getting their voices heard in that state probably anytime soon. That is, that's a, that's a really good point. Susan, I would love to hear what you think about this transition in Arkansas from, <laughs> from, 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 from Bill Clinton to, yeah. to Sarah Huckabee Sanders. I mean, after that race was called, right, uh, Maggie Haberman, New York Times reporter Maggie Haberman uh, tweeted that her victory would put her on the shortlist for the VP nomination if Trump wins in 2024. I mean, Sarah, Sarah Huckabee <laughs> Sanders goes from the worst fucking Secretary, yeah. press secretary in the history, maybe worst. I don't know. There've been Kaylee McInerney was right up there. Yeah. Yeah. McInerney <laughs> was pretty bad. But Sarah Sanders is one of the worst. And it, like, how do you go from press secretary to governor to VP shortlist? How are you thinking about that? Well, I mean, <laughs> there's so much to unpack Sorry. there. Dropped enough. <laughs> Let's not forget the reason she so easily won the um, the nomination was not just because of her relationship or working for Donald Trump. It was because of her last name. <laughs> yeah. Huckabee Sanders. Yeah. That is, I mean, she comes from the state. Her father was also. So that that's the that's the in-between governor, I think. 
you go from, you know what I mean? You go from, so the first Huckabee comes right after um, Bill Clinton, I I believe. Uh, But again, it does go to governance. And there is something that even if you have a famous last name in a state, you still have to deliver. You still have to govern. And she has to be careful that the legislature just doesn't flat out roll all over her. Mm-hmm. If she's, I mean, that, and that's a really real thing because let me tell you, I mean, it doesn't matter if you're in the same party or not. Governors like their control and state legislatures like their control, and they are more confrontational than mm-hmm. even within the parties for power. So there's that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't put a whole <laughs> lot of faith in, in, in governance. Um, so. Then there's the issue of being named as a VP, potential VP. I mean, it's almost insulting to say that you're you're qualified to be Donald Trump's uh, VP (laughs) on the ticket. I mean, to you, you, not to her. No, but it has. You have to be the most compliant, like follow the cult leader. No, no sense of self worth to be a vice president to Donald Trump. It just says that you're basically a blob of nothing and that you're just going to follow. Yeah, Mike (laughs) Pence. It also, I mean, I don't see it happening because, you you know, a vice president, even Donald Trump realized in bringing on Mike Pence in 2016, you do need someone who who can bring something to the ticket. I think it's very unlikely that, that Sarah would bring anything to the ticket it is frightening to see it, but I actually think seeing something like that, it reminds me of Sarah Palin. Mm. Um, I, I was with just going to, I was just going to ask, do you think she's trying to like be the next Sarah Palin? Do you think? Oh, no, she, could I, easily, she, she could I, be. I, honestly, from, so? what I, from what I've heard, she's, yeah. re, she would be really happy just to be governor. Like she, mm. th- th- that would be okay with her. You don't want to be yeah. set up for failure. And to aspire to be the next Sarah Palin is nothing but being set up for failure. She's had her success. She's financially secure. She's had the spotlight. Given her family, everything else. I don't think she's running for that. But it does say something that that's the best qualified person that Donald Trump may have as a VP candidate. <laughs> sure does. And also, if he comes and taps her on the shoulder and says, hey, I want you to do this, she's going to say yes, right? She's yeah. not going to say she's not going to say no to that. So. Again, governance. Uh, yeah, right. Um, uh, I, I have a little yeah. bit of a hot take because um, Susan did bring up the family part. Um, I can't even believe I'm saying this, but I do think it is potentially worth noting that she is the first daughter in U.S. history to serve um, as governor of the same state that her father led. And I only bring that up because I'm curious if she will in some way try and run on some kind of, or, or govern in some kind of like female empowerment, like, look what I did. I didn't just want to be, you know, what my mom was. I, you know, girls can do what their dads do. Like, I'm just so curious to see how much of that narrative plays in, or if she just totally brushes that to the side because, she doesn't care about women's issues yeah. or, or leadership, but um, I don't know. I just thought for that was one thing worth noting in the story is that that is technically an achievement. Um, I wish it were for someone else, and we were talking about another state and something a little more beautiful. But yeah. um, I don't know. I, I think 
worth watching that part. I mean, look, it's also worth mentioning that Trump puts a woman on the ticket. It definitely bolsters his chances, right? Yeah. And he knows that. Um, mm, I don't buy that don't necessarily. So? No, mm. because I think voters have become too sophisticated for that. I don't think it makes a difference. I, I really don't. Not for him. I don't think that helps him because the only because of the type that if it was her of, of a, a woman could help, but not yeah. this one. Not her. Yeah. Not her. <laughs> no. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. I don't think they care that much, honestly. <laughs> it's hard I mean, to I think know the people they, who are going to vote for Donald. I think the people who are going to vote for Donald Trump are not going to care about which woman it is. Correct. That's why I'm saying yeah. it doesn't help yeah. him. I see. Because they're going to vote for him. She's not going to make, oh, I don't know how I feel about Donald Trump, but Sarah Sanders, Huckabee Sanders is on the ticket, so I know there'll be stability. (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't ring the same way. Doesn't ring the same way. On Tuesday, the Washington Post reported that newly declassified U.S. intelligence shows that Russia's naval blockade has stopped maritime trade at Ukrainian ports and has heightened fears about food shortages and political instability. So this is a this is a story that Mike and I brought up on the roundup a couple of weeks ago when we were heading back from Ukraine. And uh, and because we we got to learn a lot about this issue while we were there, I wanted to bring it into the roundup because I think this is a, I think this is actually a huge under the radar story that a lot of people are not paying enough attention to and has the potential to be enormously consequential, not just, uh, not just for the war, but also politically here for Joe Biden. If it's, if it's, if it's managed, if it's messaged and managed, uh, in a certain way. So Russia's Navy effectively controls all of the traffic in the Northern third of the Black Sea which makes it unsafe for commercial shipping right now. This is particularly problematic because of the essential role that Ukraine plays in producing grain, an essential agricultural product. So Ukraine produces about 10% of the world's wheat exports, and about 95% of that wheat flowed through Black Sea ports, like Odessa, which is controlled by Putin right now. They also produce 14% of the world's corn and 17% of barley. And the UN's food program buys about 40% of Russian grain. And the UN's food program feeds Africa, okay? And, it, and, it, and it's shipped out of the ports, mainly out of Odessa. On Tuesday, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen said that about 20 million tons of wheat are stuck in Ukraine and that Russia is, quote, hoarding its own food exports as a form of blackmail. She also said that Russia quote, is using hunger and grain to wield power. Now, what you have to understand is that this isn't new for Russia. 1932, 1933, Stalin famously, infamously, used hunger as a weapon of war to kill millions of Ukrainians. And in fact, that's sort of built into the the zeitgeist there. This starvation by hunger, which is an extremely painful uh, way to die, is, has a name that they remember. It's called the Holodomir. So this idea of using, of using uh, hunger as a weapon of war, as a weapon of genocide, is, is something that the Ukrainians remember from history, and it's something the Russians have done before. So 
so this, so, so I want to give you the context, like the backdrop in, in which this is happening. So the blockade has caused grain and bread prices, obviously, to skyrocket, which may have a bigger impact on, you know, politically fragile countries like Lebanon, where bread prices have increased seventy percent since the war began. Um, and world leaders have now called this blockade a deliberate attack on the global food supply chain and fear that it's going to increase political instability. Uh, Ukrainian President Zelensky has been asking Western powers to break up the blockade for weeks. Um, on Monday, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff Mark Milley told reporters that the U.S. does not have any vessels in the Black Sea. U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres went to Moscow in April to attempt to, to, to strike a deal uh, freeing up exports from Ukraine, but he has not been successful. Um, former Army General Jack Keane suggested that the U.S. ought to lead an operation escorting food and commercial ships safely out of Odessa and the Black Sea. One of the big obstacles to this, by the way, that's that's the key part to remember, right? That what you need in order to get the grain out of Ukraine is a security guarantee in the Black Sea that those ships carrying grain won't be bombed. That's that that or, or destroyed. That's what you need. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean a military intervention. It could be commercial ships. It's just that people with uh, with the ability, countries with the ability, uh, have to have to provide a security guarantee that they will protect those ships. Right. One of the big obstacles to this would be negotiating with Turkey which controls access to the Black Sea under a 1930s era agreement. And there's some debate about whether Turkey would be willing to, you know, upset Russia. But there's growing pressure as this food security risks, um, as these food security risks increase. And one of the dis- key distinctions before everybody says, oh, you know, we can't, we can't get that involved. One of the key distinctions between an escort and something like a no-fly zone is that the escort ships escort ships would again be in international waters and they would not deny russian ships access to the waters they would just be a deterrent to russian aggression so the, the tldr here is if you don't get the grain out of ukraine africa's going to starve that's the bottom line and there's an enormous political opportunity here for biden if he leads the way to secure the grain ships so that they can leave because that will have an enormous impact on the war and potentially neuter Vladimir Putin, right? Because the whole point of him controlling Odessa and keeping the grain in Ukraine, keeping it from leaving so that it will spoil there, is to, is to shut off the Ukrainian economy. That's the whole point. So, and by the way, why, you know, people, if people ask, why can't they just ship the grain out on trucks, right? Why can't they just get it out of the country another way? It, it, there is a, um, there's 20 million tons of grain. You can get about maybe one or two tons, if that, out via truck across the border. The, the, the infrastructural capacity is just not there to move grain across borders to where it needs to go. It's just impossible. Um, it, it wouldn't be enough. So whew, that's a long windup, but I hope that sort of paints the picture here. Um, so Susan... My question to you is, since the beginning of the Trump administration, right, the global standing of the U.S. has been diminished. The America first positioning has made it really clear to the rest of the world that if you need help, you should look somewhere else, right? And now Biden is beginning to change that. He has changed that, especially with the handling of the Ukraine war. So how can we think about this as an opportunity for him to reestablish America as a global leader and, and, and uh, do, you know, there are multiple wins here if it's handled well, how would you be advising him? Well, first of all, there will be multiple wins. First, for as far as looking at, quote, America first, is the amount of the cost of 
bread in this country because we import grain as well and they need will be significant. So you're going to have more, what do you call it, supply chain issues when it comes to to, um, wheat, but globally it's significant. You mentioned Turkey. Now, I don't think that Turkey is necessarily going to be antsy because of Russia as much as they're going to use it as a card to hold over Sweden and Finland joining NATO. That is, they've already said they don't want them in or that it'll have to take 50 years to get in, something ridiculous. That would be the card. I'll trade you humanitarian access or or at least fight for it and, and give you as much support as we can if you hold off on letting Sweden and Finland into NATO, which Finland and Sweden was one of Joe Biden's biggest accomplishments. I mean, that's that goes down in the history books. No question. This is getting to take a lot of drain on this president a lot it, 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 because he is juggling a lot internationally. The trip he just had overseas was basically a, we're going to, you know, get you China. Like I'm paying attention. I'm eyeballing you and you better not step out of line while you think we're dealing with this world crisis. But he does have to do everything possible to get that grain out. The problem, the basic fundamental problem is when you're looking at Putin, he invaded another country. So why wouldn't he attack the ships? He has threatened the worst form of warfare. So why wouldn't he just blow up a ship? And his back is against the wall because his, it's a, his actions have been failing, especially this, the ship that um, went down, the Russian ship that was attacked by Ukrainians and and sunk like that's a that was a big deal. So he may want fuck to you, his, Russian warship. <laughs> well, <laughs> and like, but think about it now. If you're if you're Russia, if you're Putin, you you don't want to show that you're weak there. You you right. double down. That's right. what you do. So Liz, if the Biden administration decides to go this route, right? They're 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 going to see. Um, attacks from Republicans that we shouldn't be working on helping other nations feed themselves. Um, if, if you were advising Democrats, right? I mean, like that, yeah, you can see I, that coming. Yep. If you were advising uh, him, Democrats, what, wh- how, would you, how would you message this? How, what would the strategy be? How would you use this to sell the American people on, uh, on this effort, you know, heading into the midterms? I mean, how, how, do, you, how do you negotiate the wins here? How do you negotiate the wins? That's a that's a great question. Um, because uh, to your point, to Susan's point, there are multiple there are multiple wins here. Um, and look, um, what I will say is, as Susan was talking, part of me was like, this mission isn't possible. Like we know, Putin has shown us who he is. This is not going to be possible. But the other part of me saw Top Gun last night, and I think our navy is pretty amazing. Um, and so. I know that's fantasy world, but I'm like, there's, there's going to be a way if there is a will and there has to be a will because it is not just about Joe Biden winning reelection should he win or the midterms going well for Democrats. When you look at the, the baby formula shortage right now, I think that we are finally seeing those who aren't fully politically engaged understand how larger... <laughs> Global issues can impact you at home, 
in a very real way. And I wish it were not for the lack of baby formula or other supply chain issues that we were having, especially, you know, those around the holidays and and others. I think that it is finally becoming very real for Americans that it's not just let's go get involved in another war, but it is it is how are we engaging to best protect our citizens. And I believe that is always at the forefront of Joe Biden's mind, so much so that he's doing a much better job as president internationally than he is domestically, I would say. And I believe that he is kind of, I can't even say reaping the the benefits of win after win abroad, but he's so focused abroad and doing such a great job, you know, to the point about what is going on with NATO going down in the history books. He is very good at this stuff. And I think until some of these repercussions, again, come home, come to people's lives in a very realistic way, in terms of messaging and voter turnout on this issue and all of that, I, it's going to take a lot of discipline from Democrats and a lot of focus grouping and modeling to get the right messages to the right people in the right in the right districts on this. I also, I also want to say um, when you talk about Stalin, let's also not forget that Hitler invaded Ukraine. I'm sure there were many complex, um, you know, various reasons, but it was to have food. It was to get that breadbasket. And so there was that invasion in 1941. So you talk about Stalin, you talk about Hitler. I mean, if we're calling them leaders, you know, these individuals understand the value of taking over Ukraine and not just what it means to Ukrainians, um, but to the world. And so I do believe Joe Biden has an enormous task ahead of him to A, try and figure out the solution militarily, diplomatically, et cetera, but then also the Democratic strategist class and the Democratic comms experts class. They need to start really thinking, how are we going to talk about this to make it very real and not to allow it to start impacting people at home who can then point a finger and blame Joe Biden for not doing something, which I think is the other side of the coin that is a very real possibility. Can I just add, there's one other, there is an issue with, um, with Biden in leading this effort, and that is the UN has been reluctant to do the right thing when it comes to Ukraine. And this is a job that is meant for the UN. So that will be another test of of President Biden in having to try and get that to happen, because they are probably the only ones, if the US goes in, that's any provocation, will will lead to war with us yeah. with us literally going to war. So the US we is useless. Need, I mean the, the UN is useless in that they they have been useless so far. But we have to find a way to to buck them up enough yeah. to get that weed out because and to get that grain out. The only yeah, they have to do it. They they are yeah. literally the only people who can do it. I mean, what would happen? I mean, I, I am I am curious to see what would happen if a whole bunch of of private interest or commercial interests decided to band together and go in and, and agree to get the grain out, uh, would, would, who would step up and give them a security guarantee? Like, you see what I mean? It can only be, this, the, this that's what happen. I'm saying. The, yes, the companies can step up, but they would have to do it under a UN flag. That's, I mean, no matter how they're willing to set up or they're, I mean, they're risking getting blown. I mean, that would be, 
they're risking a lot. We know what Putin's capable of. Yeah. So that's what I'm saying. As much, if it is even meaning getting private companies and other countries to agree or come, you know, other ways to get that, that grain out of there, how they do it, the only negotiation is through the UN and the UN does, if it chooses, have some sway with Russia. The only people who do right now, because they are part of the UN. And if they, if Putin tacked ships under a UN flag, um, that would mean yeah. war yeah. as well. The bottom line is watch this story, watch this space because Ron, was, it's, it's going to be pivotal. Yeah. Sorry, Ron, I was just going to say, I'm really glad that you brought this up. Um, I think this is really important. I think it's not yet an issue that's on the day-to-day radar of voters. And and yeah, I mean, to your point about watching the story, I would- It will be. Yeah. Oh yeah. Very soon, probably. Yeah. Some of us, Ron, if you may recall, have yeah. been watching it for a while. <laughs> yes. We had a previous po- podcast where Mike and Madrid and I kind of got into it a little. Um, someone That's did bring right. it up. Just yeah, then. Oh, I gotta, that? I gotta go that, back Susan? and listen. I gotta go back and listen to that one. That sounds, <laughs> sounds like a good one. Just saying. That was a while back. <laughs> it was a while this. back. It was a wild yeah. podcast. It was a wild podcast. <laughs> but grain was discussed. <laughs> grain was discussed. <laughs> and who cares about grain? We're all going to care about grain yeah. this season. Amen. Now that we're up to speed on some of the biggest stories this week, let's turn to what you were watching under the radar. What do you have for us, Susan? President Biden did uh, sign an executive order on policing. It's small, but it was in honor of George Floyd. I think we're going to see more executive orders. I would look for a flurry of them. It's the only wins this administration can get and give to those running. So I would expect to see a bunch more, even when they're at a session for the next 10 days. Liz, what do you got? Not to uh, keep so much of this episode when a ton is obviously happening domestically, but so much of it, you know, on the international space. Um, President Biden just got back from his first trip to Asia, um, and uh, it was on this very first trip that he was asked in a press conference if he would respond militarily if China um, attacked Taiwan, and he said yes. And if you watch the press conference, he said it without hesitation, bluntly, plainly. It wasn't a gaffe. It was very intentional. And so there are two very interesting things to me on this. The first is that White House staffers then had to kind of scramble to figure out, you know, how to talk about this response. You know, let's say the proper response, I'm putting that in big air quotes, would have been to talk about the U.S.'s one China policy um, if he was going to deflect in the press conference. But I think he's... Not to quote the West Wing, but let Biden be Biden, right? Like he said yes, he meant yes. And to, um, you know, have his staffers try and be on their back feet trying to talk through it, um, he meant it. And he meant it for good reason, because the very um, next day, China and Russia together flew nuclear-capable bombers over the Sea of Japan when Biden was in Tokyo, the very next day. And Russia was saying, you know, this was a sanctioned exercise. Japan was saying it was totally inappropriate. So anyway, it's a much bigger story than just one thing in one press conference. But I think kind of watching how his Asia trip will continue to play as it relates to Russia, Ukraine and others, um, definitely something to watch. 
it it that's a really good uh like story and also something everybody first of all it's huge it's going to have huge implications but also um uh, everyone needs to understand that Joe Biden understands probably better than anybody else in power yeah. right now yep. uh exactly what the implications of that statement were he understands exactly what he's doing um uh, so, uh, and there, there was a great, um, I think the daily did a really good piece on this, um, about why, uh, so I, I rec- would recommend that really good story. Um, okay. I just want to mention this one thing that I, that I, uh, that I noted this week, which I think could have some, um, some, some repercussions going forward, which is that this U S fourth circuit court of appeals ruling, uh, about section three of the Fourteenth Amendment. This is the this is the Madison Cawthorn lawsuit, right? The challenge of candidacy for for um, uh, insurrectionists, right? So section three, Fourteenth Amendment bars insurrectionists from holding office. This appeals court ruling basically says that can be applied to current and future political candidates. So I'm looking ahead to when this is actually applied to people who participated in the January 6th insurrection. And, uh, I, 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 um, I think again, watch this space. So that's a, that was a big decision. All right, gang. Um, before we flip over to Politicology Plus, we're going to talk about this quiet search Democrats are on <laughs> for a non-Biden presidential candidate. Uh, where can everybody find you on the internet, Liz? I'm on Twitter at underscore Liz Gilbert. And Susan? I'm on Twitter at DelPercyOS. And I'm on Twitter at Ron Steslow. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening today. You can support the show by joining the growing, thriving community of Politicology Plus members and gain access to hours of special content designed to help you think like a political strategist and look further down the road than everyone else and understand the forces and figures shaping the fight for democracy. You can unlock this premium content at politicology.com slash plus. If you have any questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us as always at podcast at politicology.com. Even if we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.